One of my favorite movies includes the song, Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. I started that pretty low. Yeah, A, B, C, when you sing, you begin with do, re, mi. I mean, there's something about this particular passage of Scripture that we have before us in Hebrews 5 that just goes straight to the basics, straight to the beginning, right to the fundamentals. And these are important. These are important things. So this is Hebrews 5. We'll read all the way through the fifth chapter of Hebrews and into the first couple verses of the sixth chapter, Hebrews 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, chapter 6, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. This is an interesting passage. The flow of the argument goes essentially like this. Priests are selected from among the people. They're selected to offer gifts and sacrifices, to deal gently with the ignorant or those who are going astray. They are empathetic because they understand the weaknesses the people experience because they are their own weaknesses. They make sacrifices for their own sins. No one declares them to be a priest. It's an honor that's bestowed. Neither did Jesus take the honor for himself 
The Father called him. The Father made him the perfect high priest by giving him opportunities to obey. And Jesus did obey in the costliest ways possible. And because he obeyed and because he suffered, he becomes a completely new kind of priest, a perfect high priest. He understands what we are going through. He deals gently with the ignorant and those who are wondering. But he did not need to make sacrifice for his own sins since he did not sin. So then the question remains, who did he make the sacrifice for? He certainly made a sacrifice He chose to be in the situation he was in. I mean, consider all the miracles of Scripture, walking on water, turning water into wine, healing all forms of disease, casting out demons, raising the dead. Think of the times in Scripture where the author says Jesus walked right through the crowd, meaning they had a different agenda where they were about to seize him and do something, either injure him or make him king. If you look back at like Luke 4.30 or John 10.39 or John 7.30, you'll see all these instances where Jesus just, even though the people are after him, he just, he just walks away. I mean, it's obvious that if he didn't want to obey the Father and enter Jerusalem, which he knew would lead to crucifixion, he didn't have to go. He could have easily just walked through that crowd the way he walked out of many other crowds during this time on earth. He chose to offer a perfect sacrifice to God. He could have avoided Jerusalem. He could have avoided that hotbed of rebellion, the seat of political power. The only reason Jesus comes to Jerusalem is to accomplish the sacrifice he is willing to make. He chooses to make the perfect sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that he doesn't personally need to make because he hasn't sinned. But a sacrifice that God accepts from him based on our need of a sacrifice. And that essentially means Jesus died for us, for humanity. This gentle Jesus cut down in the prime of his life, yields to the destructive forces of the world so that we can be freed from our sinfulness and can find a new way to live. When you understand what Jesus did and why he did it, you can't help but love this Jesus. He endured so much for us. He suffered so much that that we needed him to suffer for us so that we could have a new chance at life. And I think that someone who really understands what Jesus has done, what he continues to do for us, but chooses not to receive that gift or doesn't value that gift, I would think that kind of person would be somewhat ungrateful or just confused, not understanding all that Jesus did. Our author's making the case that Jesus is a brand new kind of priest, one we haven't seen on earth before. And the author's going to, in the next chapter, begin talking about that priesthood, about the nuances of the way Jesus serves as our high priest. It's a rich and wonderful discussion. It can be a little bit difficult to follow at times. And so before he launches in, 
the author just sort of adds an aside. And this aside is pretty much everything we read today, this little injection. And this is what he essentially says. There's a bunch of basic stuff we ought to know already. And if we don't have this basic stuff figured out, we're never going to understand what he's about to say about Jesus as a special kind of high priest in the next coming verses. And so before we move on to this more advanced discussion, we're going to make sure that this basic stuff is in place. I don't know if you were blessed to have geometry in high school when you were a kid, but there are some things that are really basic to the way we understand geometry. For example, through two points, only one line can pass. It's a given. It's a basic. It can't be disputed. It's always true. It's, it's basic. Two right angles will always have the same measurement because, by definition, right angles always are 90 degrees. It's, it's just basic. It's fundamental. On all the other complicated questions, they all hang on basic information like this. What the author is going to talk about today is the basic stuff the basic stuff on which everything else hangs. In fact, unless you aren't grounded in these elementary truths, he's going to argue, you don't have a hope of figuring out the more complex stuff. One of my suspicions is the reason we have so much difficulty getting along in the general Christian church today is we haven't quite figured out some of these basic things yet. And we get calcified in our interpretations of doctrine or whatever, and we forget that there's some basic things that we just have to agree on. And if we don't get those right, everything else gets messed up after that. And so adjustment to what we believe about the basic things is really, really important. In fact, there's a warning in our author's voice as he speaks. I should run and get the, wet, the red flag and wave it a few times, but after losing that hour of sleep last night, my energy is critically low. So I'm just going to save it to get to the end of this. This is the warning. He says, given the amount of time you've been Christians already, so he's not necessarily speaking to novice Christians at this point, I mean, the people who are in view in this passage have been Christian for a while, and we remember their central conflict is whether they should continue to pursue the way of the cross or if they might think about slipping back into Judaism, which is a huge mistake in our author's mind. And it may be that it's because they're facing persecution. It may be that they're just, they're just worn out from working so hard at being Christian that they're tempted to slip back. And the author's saying, no, 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 you can't do that. And he reminds them, the fact that you've grown this long, or you've been a Christian this long, these things you really should have figured out. And if you're not sure about these basics after this much time, you need to be really careful and go back, inspect these things again, so that we can grow onto maturity. That's the goal, right? We want to be mature appropriately developed 
for our age as Christians. You understand that maturity isn't a given in the faith. You and I have all seen folks who have reached old ages but have never grown up. They're still nasty, self-centered people who look the same as they did 40 years ago. And you say, how, how did you manage to you know, live this long and not figure out that you're not the center of the universe? It, it's, a, it's a sad thing to see older folks who are still so self-absorbed they haven't figured out there's more to it than them getting their own basic needs satisfied by everyone around them. It's true of Christians. Christians have the potential to stay stuck in those early days if they don't grow into maturity and figure out these basic things. And what are the basic things that are listed in the passage? They're right here. Repentance from acts that lead to death. Okay? Repentance from acts that lead to death. Two, faith in God. Three, instruction about cleansing rites and rituals, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal punishment. That's the list of the elementary. I'm not saying that that's a comprehensive list of elementary things. That's not everything, but this is a foundational structure the author gives us. These things should be simple. They should be basic to us. If you don't get this right, if you don't get this list ingrained in your life, if you don't understand the basic things, then you're going to be in trouble. You'll never figure out the advanced stuff. And let's face it, there are some really tough advanced questions. I mean, we're not going to say there aren't really tough advanced questions, but you'll never be on the right stable foundation to be able to begin to even approach them if you don't get this basic stuff right. So what does it mean? Repentance. Sinful acts performed and repeated lead to death. Sin kills you. That's about as basic as it gets, right? You might think you're getting away with something. You might buy into our society's idea that if you don't get caught, it doesn't count. But the basic truth of this is sinful acts kill you in every conceivable way. You can't cover up sin and evil in your life. Sin always grows. It expands to take up more and more room. It will suffocate the life out of you. It will turn you into a rigid, self-centered person. You know how it is. You lie one time, and then you have to lie to cover the lie, and then that snowball to the place where you don't know what the truth is anymore. Sin does that in every area of life. And if we haven't figured out that sin kills us, we're on shaky ground to begin with. We have to, number two, exercise faith in God. We have to believe that God is real, he exists, that he must be contended with. And by faith in him, these two are really connected, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be forgiven of the past. We can have the past buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness. And by his help, we can move forward with his help 
to resist sin and to become victorious over sin. We have to believe that sin kills us and that faith in God can provide a different alternative future for us. That's foundational. You hear folks in society today say outrageous things like, why would I repent? I have no need for repenting. And, and that's, that's building a life on a foundation that says, whatever choice I make for me is right for me. It doesn't matter how it impacts anybody else. It doesn't matter how God thinks about it. Just my decisions are all just me. It's my truth. That's an unstable foundation according to the scripture. The scripture says the foundation that you can build on is that sin kills you and so you must repent of it and have faith to believe that it's possible with the help of God to live differently. That's basic. There's a second basic thing that's talked about. Instructions about cleansing rituals and the laying on of hands. Um, Baptism is sort of in mind here, but that's not grammatically what's being said. Uh, They're saying... Uh, that the early Christians needed to understand the difference between the various cleansing rituals that existed. There were cleansing rituals in the Jewish faith. Baptism was something different than that. And the difference was baptism symbolized dying to self and being resurrected in Christ as a new creature. Salvation from sins and a new life in Christ was all of what baptism was about. And in fact, in those early days, when you were baptized, the apostles, the pastors, whoever, immediately laid their hands on you when you came out of the water and prayed that you would receive the Holy Spirit. And so all of that is in view in in these two items to understand what baptism really is, that the foundational thing about this new life in Christ was it was a complete disconnect from the previous life. It was something new. This this ritual of baptism was the entry right into the kingdom of God. It's just that basic. All Christians get baptized because all Christians obey Jesus who invited us to be baptized. Isn't that what Matthew 28 says? Go make disciples and baptize. And by example of his own baptism showed us that it was necessary. So Christians, we get baptized out of obedience to Christ because it is the symbol that represents that we are new creatures in Christ. The old is gone, everything is new. And then we pray that the Holy Spirit will come. We believe that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit, God himself, enters our lives and helps us to become new kinds of people. That's fundamental to who Christians are. Faith, repentance, baptism, New life in Christ lived with different objectives, different ideals, all under new management. That's, that's what it is. And if we don't understand that this is a new way of life, we may be tempted to think that Christianity is just sort of an experience where I get my fire insurance for the judgment day and I just continue living the way I always did. It's not that. This isn't a get out of hell pass Christianity. It is a new way of living completely, where by the grace of God, he helps me to be something other than what I once was. That's fundamental. That's basic. This isn't rocket science. It's new stuff, but it's basic to who we are. The the third grouping, if you will, actually the fifth and sixth things that are listed here, is the issue of 
the resurrection of the dead, and eternal punishment. We're headed somewhere. History isn't a cycle that just repeats itself. It's linear and it has a destination. And the destination is eternity with God. And after we have lived with God, we will all face judgment with its rewards and its punishments. That's a basic piece. We will be answerable. There are consequences. You and I know we live in a society that just isn't quite sure there are consequences for anything. And if they are, we'd rather reject them. That's not what the Bible is revealing to us. There's a basic truth in play here, and that is we were created to be immortal beings, to live forever in God's presence. And we're going to be judged one day based on our relationship with Christ. And on that day, there will be eternal rewards and punishments. The reward is getting to live forever with Christ. The punishment is not getting that. It's not something we can afford to risk. Not something we can afford to risk. All of that is the basic stuff, the elementary truths. And in order to move on to the advanced stuff, you must, through repetition and exercise in the basic stuff, what does the passage say? Develop a sense of right and wrong. That's what proceeds from the exercise of the basic stuff. You learn how to live a righteous life. You learn how to live and discern what's right and wrong. Ethical discernment is what is expected of people who have been Christians for some period of time. Ethical discernment is expected. It seems to me that this kind of a passage of Scripture is really appropriate for our time. Uh, in a day when basic ethical discernment is really up for grabs, um, and I would dare say to the extent that sometimes unethical practices have even infiltrated into the church, um, this instruction is really critical. I mean, how are we going to understand the mature topics of complete consecration and abandonment to Christ if we can't even get into the same arena of agreeing on what is ethically right and ethically wrong? If we're candid, you read the news, we're not completely sure that honesty is all that important and stealing is okay if you can get away with it. We don't ever get to the fine point of talking about what it means to manipulate others to get what you want. Because if you can influence others to get what you want, that's perfectly fine. There isn't any reason why we wouldn't manipulate or leverage people to get what we want. That's a more advanced conversation, perhaps. We're not sure that we have any problem with character assassination. Say whatever you want, knock people down. If it's an advantage to you to drop them a few pegs in the ladder, do it because it will help you get ahead in your career. We're not sure about that in the society. We don't have a lot of difficulty demanding our own way. That's just being assertive. You have to be assertive if you're going to get ahead. We don't want to talk about our disagreements. We just want to lambaste people on social media. And we certainly, I mean, 
Respecting those who disagree with us, that's a finesse point that's lost on many folks. And the very basic concept that we ought to obey God, I mean, that's just lost in the society at large. We're more about self-promotion and getting what we can get. I think they just call that hedonism, actually. Um, a lot of these foundational topics are lost. But we Christians, by the exercise of right thinking around these foundational topics, by the grace of God offered us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we can exercise ethical choices. And in the exercising of that, we become different. We grow. We mature. We begin to discern more easily what is right and wrong. And then we begin to recognize when we're trying to be manipulative. We may not have caught that the first time through. The first year or two when I was being a Christian, maybe I didn't catch that piece. But now, by growing increasingly sensitive to the voice of God in me, I notice what the Spirit's saying and my own inappropriate motives or practices. Even if it was just a matter of saying the wrong thing without any intentional harm, the Spirit talks to me about those things. I feel off. I feel like, oh, did I say something wrong there? I need to apologize for that. That was... Whitney, you're a goof. Why did you do that? The sensitivity that comes from listening helps us be the mature people we ought to be. And so the warning is, don't fall away by not progressing. Don't fall away. Don't slip back for a lack of progressing. Keep moving forward. C.S. Lewis wrote about our modern condition in this way. The ancient man approached God like the accused person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man makes himself the judge. God is on trial. The man is a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to him. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. There's a twist in us. And we must get the basic things right. And as long as we sit in judgment of God, things are disordered. But when we recognize that God is the judge, that he sets the terms of our existence, that he graciously loves us and invites us to be the people he created us to be, we have a chance to get the basic things right. And when we get the basic things right, when by exercising the basic things, we begin to be able to discern what is good and evil, and we have a foundation that we can build our lives on, then we have the opportunity to move forward.
God will not be judged by us on the last day. We're the ones on trial. And our trial will be based on our faith in God and whether we are members of his family or not. If we haven't figured out yet that he is the center of the universe and we are not, things will go badly for us on that day. But they don't have to go badly. That's the good news, isn't it? If we will embrace these fundamental truths, that God has a new life in store for us, that we can be forgiven of what we've done in the past, that by his grace, by the presence of his spirit in us, there is a completely new kind of future available to us. One that isn't just a static condition, but one that shows growth and progress and richness and fullness. Well, that, that's good news for us, isn't it? That there's something more available We must embrace the basic things to develop the ethical muscles that will allow us to move into the realm of righteousness. And Lent is the time to make sure you have all the basics right. This is the time. So this morning I would ask you to consider, to think, Firmly built on these basics. Is your life firmly built on these basics? Do you have these things in their proper place? Are you prepared to move forward into more mature discussions? You know, in the the author's words, um, he uses the kind of imagery which just doesn't work for vegetarians today. But the little kids got to have milk. But we really want porterhouse. We really want filet mignon. We want big meaty steaks, is what he's saying. But you just can't digest steak if all you can permit is milk. So I don't know what vegetarians impose on the steak thing. Maybe it's soy sauce infused tofu, I don't know. But there's something about stepping up into the wideness of God's kingdom that ought to be attractive to us, to the joys of serving with the king who loves us. And that's where we want to be, right? Let's make sure we have these basics right. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for making things clear to us so that we don't have to labor in foolish controversy, so we don't have to linger believing things that aren't true, so that we don't have to stay self-absorbed, self-centered people who are of no use to you. But we pray, Lord Jesus, you would give us faith to believe that you really do forgive us that you will give us faith to believe that you can help us overcome our sinfulness, that you can wipe the record clean and establish us in a new way of living. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible good news 
that tells us the future doesn't have to resemble the past, that we can be new in you. And we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would call to us and invite us into this kind of relationship with you. Lord, for those of us who have lingered too long on elementary things, forgive us. Help us to settle these fundamental questions so that we can move on to maturity. And Lord, for those of us who have settled these fundamental questions and maybe haven't quite gotten to the level of maturity we ought to attain by now, forgive us and help us to open ourselves to you. And Lord, for those of us who are mature, we pray you would give us the humble grace to recognize it is all because of what you've done and not because of what we've done. That any maturity we have is simply a gift of your grace because all good things come from you. Help us, Lord, we pray. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Sing with me. Stand as we sing. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, Oh God, how I need you. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. If in the days ahead, you find that you would really like to have a longer conversation about that, what you've heard today or in previous weeks, I wouldn't strongly encourage you to give me a call. I've got lots of open time in my schedule. I would love nothing more than to sit down and talk over these things with you. My phone number is listed on the prayer sheet. You can find it on the internet. You can look up the church number on our website. There's tons of ways to get in touch. But if you have questions, you just want to talk through stuff that's not making sense to you, please call. Nothing would give me greater pleasure than to be able to sit down and talk with you about basic stuff, about more mature stuff, or whatever's on your heart. And now may the God of peace, who brought back our Lord Jesus from death, and through his blood established an eternal covenant with us, may that God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. To the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.